to Life Conversations, where we explore what it means to live fully in marriage, in motherhood, and in meaningful work. Thank you for joining us on Life Conversations. We have another amazing guest for you today. But before we dive in, we wanted to ask for your help in expanding our community. We'd love if you could rate and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If there is a particular episode you loved, please do share it with your friends. You can also follow us on our Instagram, Life Conversations, a podcast. If there's something that deeply resonated with you on an episode or something you'd love to hear more about, please message us. We love hearing from you. Thank you again for joining us on this journey of marriage, motherhood, and meaningful work. Hi, and welcome back to Life Conversations. We are here for part two of our two-part series with Dr. Russell Kennedy, the Anxiety MD. Uh, We put a request out to our community to submit your questions for Dr. Russ um, on anxiety. And so many of you reached out with amazing questions. We had to really distill it down to just a few. So we've really chosen some of the big themes that showed up in the questions. And we know that Dr. Russ is gonna provide some really valuable feedback that you can take into your life to help you on the journey healing anxiety. So the first question comes from a listener who asks, fear of disease is giving me anxiety, which I think we can all relate to. While the doctor says I am healthy, how, to, how do I deal with that? Well, usually health anxiety is indicative of something deeper, mm. right? So if you had a sick parent, people with sick parents often have health anxiety. They learn this kind of fear of illness because we don't get that sense when we're younger of seeing healthy adult parents we don't get that idea that that illness is out there you know it's like we're shielded from it so i would wonder if you had a sick parent to start with Uh, you don't necessarily have to have a sick parent but it's just something uh, as a risk factor i see a lot of but usually health anxiety is basically it's anxiety it's it's a vehicle for the anxiety so Health anxiety is perfect in so many ways because you can never assure yourself that you're 100% healthy, right? So there's mm-hmm. always that little crack in the door. Oh, you know, I, I saw this thing. The doctor said that they were fine and they wound up having cancer all over their body and like all these stories that you hear all the time. So I think it's, it's looking back into your own history and did you have trauma as a child? Where, where is your alarm in your system? Can you isolate that? Because that alarm in your system is likely the the child in you that feels insecure and it feels like I need a reason for my feeling of insecurity and health anxiety is one of them. Health anxiety is one of those things that when we feel insecure the brain looks for a reason to why we feel insecure and it's like we'll get hooked on a like a health worry and and we'll see different doctors and they'll reassure us that we're fine and and then they'll go right back to the same thing again. So it's not really about the health anxiety. The health anxiety is the tip of the iceberg. It's the part of the surface that we can see. But below that, there's probably a trauma history there that has to be dealt with because the health anxiety, OCD, all that kind of stuff is on the surface. That's what we can see. But the deeper alarm below it, that's what's feeding it. And we have to heal that alarm 
or else the health anxiety is always going to be there. Plus, you know, health anxiety gives us a reason. It's like, okay, you know, I'm feeling this worry, I'm feeling this fear. What if I have cancer? Well, that makes sense to the brain, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, that makes sense. And then when something makes sense, we get this little dopamine hit in our brain, and we also secrete a little bit of morphine in our own little brains as well. It's like, oh, I'm on the right track. But we're not, though, because as soon as we start believing we have cancer, it loops back in that same sort of alarm anxiety cycle, right? It loops back like, oh my God, as Neufeld would say, at what cost? You know, like the cost is that we believe that we have cancer or we believe that we have this horrible disease. And then, of course, that fires up the alarm even more. So we're not even getting close to the original problem. We're just smoke screening ourselves away with this health anxiety. So it's not really about the health anxiety. It's that's that's the what we can see on the surface. The problem is something deeper. So it's finding what's deeper below what's feeding the health anxiety and treating that. Mm. Okay. Uh, we had another listener that I think is familiar with your work and wrote in and said, how long does it take to ease anxiety once you start to invite and soothe the body? Well, it, it depends. It depends on how sensitive you are. It depends on what your original trauma was. It depends on how much support you had if you had parents that were supportive when you were younger and you had a template for healing, you know, those people heal a lot faster. But if you had unsupportive parents or parents that were doing their own thing or narcissistic or just weren't there for you, you don't really have a template in your system to kind of allow you to show you what healing looks like. And that's where you probably need like a somatic therapist or someone who does IFS work, parts work, that kind of thing to to tease out where these things come from and then they can tell you what your healing path will likely look depending on but it depends on mostly how sensitive you are and how deep your trauma was right mm -hmm. so you know some people have trauma where they were you know left in a hospital you know for two weeks they used to have this thing years ago in the 80s and i'm laughing uncomfortably about this where they would notice that when Parents would come in and visit their kids, say after surgery or, or, or after some sort of medical procedure or whatever. When the parents left, the kids would freaking lose their minds. So what the wards started to do is they say, okay, no more parents, right? Because the kids oh, wow. will freak out. Oh, this is true. This is wow. true. So there was policies where it's like the parents can't come in because what happens when the parents leave was that the kids became unmanageable. So the kids would go into this, you know, kind of defensive detachment, this state of, you know, the same thing that happens to an animal when it gets cornered by a predator, it goes into this shutdown state. So they're like, oh, these kids are so well managed. They're just so, you know, because they're all shut down. They've all, they're all, you know, cornered. So they're all, they've all gone into sort of parasympathetic overdrive where they've shut off the, all their entire system. And uh, that's, tra that's traumatic for a child. I don't know what the original question was, but it was, you know, Something about yeah, someone just wondering once you begin this journey, this process, yeah, how long does it take to heal? Yeah, take I, to I get heal. that a lot. It, it depends on mm -hmm. how sensitive you are, how deep the trauma was, mm -hmm. and uh, if you had any template for healing growing up. That's kind of like the three things that I okay. usually talk about. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> uh, coping tips for managing anxiety, maybe even outside of that, finding your alarm. Yeah. Um, and the impact on sleep. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge one because, mm -hmm. you know, sleep is a parasympathetic activity and uh, anxiety is very sympathetic, it's very fight or flight. So I think breathing techniques are very helpful. There's this thing called the physiological sigh that Andrew Huberman talks about where it's like two quick sniffs in and a long exhale, like... <laughs> 
and that activates the parasympathetic it does activate the parasympathetic yeah but why with my anxiety patients because I they usually come into it because they've been anxious for a while so their chest wall has kind of collapsed down so basically what I get them to do is like three deep breaths in through their nose first so really expand their chest wall like feel your shoulders actually splitting apart because you've expanded your chest so much hold that breath at the top for like three to five seconds and then close your teeth and breathe out through your teeth so it sounds like this hold and as you hear that hissing sound imagine a tire deflating like that's your visual image of a tire deflating. I used to use that for people uh, with high blood pressure who had white coat syndrome. So they would freak out, their blood pressure would be high when I would take, and then I would get them to do a few rounds of that. And uh, if I do a few rounds of that, I'll zen right out. Mm -hmm. So it's like one of those things that you can train yourself, you know? That's the other thing is like, if I said to you, Tracy, in like uh, December 31st, I'm gonna take you to the basketball court, I'm gonna give you 10 foul shots. If you make three of them, I'm going to give you five million dollars. Now, are you going to start? Are you going to start training to shoot foul shots like the day before? No. No, you're going to start going out today. You're going to start shooting foul shots every freaking day until you know you can make three out of ten. So that's what I'm saying. Like, practice these breathing techniques when you feel good. Like, don't just wait until you're anxious. That's such a good point. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. because what you're trying to do is you're trying to train your conscious and unconscious system that when you do these techniques that you can actually regenerate that feeling of relaxation. So if you're only doing them when you're already stressed out, you're going to get limited benefit from it. That's the other thing I said, how does your body, if you have anxiety, how does your body feel like if you're having a day where you're feeling good? Like how do you, like how do you feel? What do you feel? In your, is there a warmth in your chest? Like does your jaw feel like relaxed? Like what exactly in your body are you feeling when you're feeling good, when the anxiety isn't actually present? Because so often we only pay attention to our body when it's not feeling good. Mm. So you're actually training yourself to get more anxious. So pay real attention to your system when you're feeling good. You know, and I learned that from Cynthia. So it's like, yeah, when you're feeling good. And that's, and SE has got a lot to do with that too. It's like when you're feeling good, like focus on when you're feeling good in your body as opposed to just, you know, paying attention to your body when you're feeling anxious or you're feeling sad or whatever. So for the really practical person, yep. how many rounds of that breathing Five. does it take? Five. Okay. I mean, it, it'll do it. Like the, And the thing is, the more you train yourself to do it, I mean, I, I remember doing it on Mel Robbins, and after I did two rounds of it, I already I could hear my voice start to go a little around, a little slower, a little, like I could already see, you know, my eyes are kind of glazing over. So it's something I've trained myself to do. Exactly. So it's like when I need it, it's there. But if I start doing it, if I'm in an environment where I need my sympathetic nervous system, I need to be able to speak and that kind of stuff, I will start to zone out a little bit because I've trained myself to zone out when I do that. So, you know, when you're driving and stuff like that, it's, it's you know, I mean, I'm sure you'd be fine, but it's basically something that you start training yourself to do and do the same thing each time. So that when you do that thing, your your unconscious mind and body remembers, oh, this is what we do when we relax. So don't just wait until you're stressed before you start doing breathing mm-hmm. stuff because it won't it'll work, but it's not gonna work as well yeah. as if you practice it. Now we have a lot of listeners who wrote in about anxiety in children. Yeah. And I know that children and teens are not necessarily your wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, despite the Newfeld work, children and teens are very individual. So it's really hard to give specific advice Mm -hmm. about, you know, children. So 
um, universal, like this one um, exercise that I do with parents is I get them to put their hand on their children's heart and put the other hand on the, the child's back so that you're kind of encircling their heart with your hands. And this is when a child is in nope, the midst of no. experiencing well, anxiety? Well, partly, okay. but this is, this is what I want to train them to do like every day after school. We just spend like 30 seconds okay. to a minute where I'm connected to you, mm -hmm. right? I'm connected to you. And you feel it, like you physiologically feel that I'm connected to you. Now, as you get into teenagers, teenagers, you know, it's like, mom, like, don't do that, right? Like, enough, <laughs> yeah. right? But with kids, you can start training them, like, like, look, I'm really connected to you. This is, this is my heart speaking to your heart, or whatever language you want to use. And you train them into that thing, so that when you do need it, you know, when they are kind of freaking out, you mm -hmm. can use that thing again. Now, when they are freaking out, and you try and put their hand on their heart, some of them will just go, nope not doing this mm -hmm. so don't right okay. but you can use it as like if they're going to dance recital or they're going into like they have to talk in front of the class or whatever you can do like 30 seconds to a minute of that once you've trained them mm -hmm. that this is a safe place for them plus you get a connection with your kid you know when you do that every day with them mm -hmm. for 30 to 60 seconds touch is such an important thing for us and we lose a lot of that too in the society there's all this talk about abuse and all that kind of stuff like yeah. touch is kind of becoming more and more taboo mm -hmm. and anxiety is rising mm -hmm. the less kids are touched yeah. right so that kids are touched things that sounded pretty weird so, <laughs> so i'm just going to leave that i'm just going to leave that alone but the other thing we you know, know where yeah, you're coming yeah, from we're exactly, on the same page right? yeah yeah so so you, you get that feeling for one and and i guess the other thing with children is just the bridging you know just whenever you leave them you're always bridging the next connection. And this is something I learned from Gordon Newfeld as well. So when you drop them off at school, hey, I'm gonna be back here at 3.30 to get you right in the spot that I'm at. I'm re really looking forward. We're gonna go over to the park and then we're gonna make rice crispy squares when we get home. Like you always bridge the next mm. connection. You're never like, have a good day at school, see ya. There's always this, hey, tonight we're gonna watch that, that you know, Ice Age movie, okay. you know, when, when we get home, we're going to have dinner, uh, we're going to make your favorite spaghetti, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be their favorite stuff all the time, but you just bridge the next connection all the time. You know, oh, you're good. always letting that's them know when you, when you leave them, when you leave, when you separate from them, you're always letting them know that the next connection is right on the horizon and this is what we're going to do. So they always know there's another connection. And even, so my children are 12 and 13, yep. even like I could start that today. Yeah. And that and you could say, you know, I learned I learned this from an anxiety doctor. I learned this from a doctor and mm -hmm. thing that, that that when we train your nervous we're training your nervous system to feel safe. Mm -hmm. So we're only going to do this like, you know, a minute or two a day, mm -hmm. but I'm going to put my hand on you. And you know, and you can ask them what they would feel like. Do you feel like is it more if I put my hands on your shoulders, get them to sit down. It's like is there a place in your body that that you want my hand that you would feel that this would feel comforting to you? Right, and then and then tell them, you know, if this starts feeling uncomfortable, just tell me, and I'll just I'll just let go and that kind of stuff. And then just sort of, you know, don't sit there for the first round like doing five or ten minutes of it. Like do like thirty seconds. Always leave them wanting more, like a showbiz thing. <laughs> like you know, and just and just show them that there is this place that you are connected to them. You are their best bet at you know moving them out into the world, and you want to create this place that when they you know you are going to run into places where you you have a dance recital or you have a speech or whatever and we can do this and you can do this for yourself mm -hmm. after a while you can you can imagine this is my hand mm -hmm. right so it's like you're training their unconscious mind and their unconscious nervous system that this is the signal that allows them to relax mm -hmm. i love that so do i every <laughs> day after school yep. when my kids come home i'm usually there 
we actually, I hug both yeah. of them. Is it the same or is it? Well, hugs are so socially conditioned, right? Mm -hmm. So I like it when, when people actually make a specific practice with their child. You know, it's, it's like, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hold your, your elbows or whatever, you know, we're going to do something that's different than, than a hug. I think mm -hmm. hugs are great. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think that they're so socially conditioned that they can be, um, you can acclimatize to them and kind of discount them, I think, mm -hmm. as a child. But when you make a specific thing, like mom and I are going to do that and then get dad to do it too, yeah. right? Where do you feel with dad? Like, where does this feel comfortable for you? Right. And, uh, and give them the option as to where do you, where would you most like mm -hmm. me to put my hand, awesome. you know, and, and that kind of thing. And I think it's just training this thing and the kids love it they well, just like, they love having that connection to you does right that also create boundaries in them too to go actually i don't like absolutely the feeling of that yeah. anymore <clears throat> yeah. or i don't like when you touch me there so yeah. please yeah that act and yeah. tell them and tell them i sorry to interrupt you but no. tell them like when you're on it's like if, if this starts to feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. i want you to tell me that mm -hmm. i want you to say look this is getting to be a bit much for me because you know maybe they have alarm in their heart mm -hmm. you know maybe that's where they feel it and when you put your hand there it might bring that up so it's like look if you want me to pull my hand away it's like this is all about you know what making you feel safe mm -hmm. right so i want you to tell me if this starts feeling uncomfortable for you right and it's like okay and it's like okay and then and then say is it okay if we go back or they may ask it's like okay you can put your hand back there again mm -hmm. so it's just so that they feel like they have some agency and some control yeah. over the situation you're not like hauling them onto the couch as soon as they get home <laughs> putting your hands on their heart it's like look i, I listened to dr Russ and he says we have to do this right stand here and yeah. take it no cupcakes until you do this yeah get over that the fridge such a good tool i love oh, it I people love are going to be using that okay we have a number of listeners that have asked about supporting their partner who experiences mm -hmm. anxiety or panic attacks. So if uh, we're talking an adult partnership now, right. someone doesn't necessarily experience anxiety themselves, but they have a spouse or a partner who has anxiety, what does that person need in the moment that they're experiencing anxiety, maybe even having a panic attack? What do they need from their partner? Yeah. It's going to support them in the best way in that moment. Yeah, it's usually an emotional flashback that they're feeling anxious. So it takes them back to a time in their childhood that they may not be aware of. So, you know, they need to be seen, heard, and loved, right? So, but a lot of times we have our survival brain on. And when we're younger, if we didn't get that care and love and support, we're suspicious of it. So it makes, you know, partnerships really hard. You know, it's like, I want to, I want to help my wife. I want to help my husband as when they go through this, but they've learned how like, you know, touch maybe wasn't safe when they were younger, that kind of thing. So it's really opening up that dialogue slowly and saying, you know, what, what would you like right now? And most of the time they'll say, I don't know. It's like, was it okay if I just put my hand on your chest? And the same thing we did with the kids. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, how does that feel? Does that feel okay? It's like, mm, no, it's, it's okay. I'm just going to take my hand away then, right? And is there something that you would like at this point, you know, that I can do for you? And, you know, social engagement system, eye contact, tone of voice, prosody of voice, body language, facial expressions, this kind of stuff, you know, inviting them. Now, when you're anxious, usually you've shut off that, that social engagement system. This is where social anxiety comes from is that if you don't have that ability to connect, you know, if eye contact is uncomfortable for you because you're already, you're in survival mode, it's going to be really difficult to get. So you have to do this really slowly. You know, okay. I call it catching an eight pound trout on four pound test, 
right? So you have to, if they run, you got to let them run. Like, okay, it's like, I'm here, you know, like, let's try and, let's try and work through this together. I understand that this is a, a situation that's going on in your body. You have a sense of alarm in your system. And what can we do to kind of understand that and soothe that as best that we possibly can? And you have to take it slowly. Like, and, and the truth is, you're probably not going to be able to bring them back into some sort of, you know, relaxed state very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes practice and they have to learn to trust. And a lot of people with anxiety, the reason why they have anxiety is they don't trust love. Mm-hmm. That's the main reason they don't have anxiety mm-hmm. is they don't trust love. So, and then people say, well, love burned me. It's like, no, love didn't burn you. A person burned you, mm-hmm. right? So love is love, but a person who is also, you know, carrying their own baggage, carrying their own alarm, they burned you, but love didn't. Okay, that's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> a big one. You talk about that more in the book. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you also mentioned to us before we started recording um, that you have. A class that you're developing a master right class, now. Yeah. A master class. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah. I'm sure people will be... It's been the bane of my existence for the last four months. So basically I did a course, a 12-week course uh, called Your Anxiety Prescription that I took like 16 or 17 people through for 12 weeks. And they loved it. They thought it was amazing. But it took a lot out of me, right? So I'm thinking, do I, I want to go it. back and do this again? It's like, mm-hmm. okay, I, I, I'm not sure because... You know, I, I feel people, I read them, right? So if I have 16 of you guys in my class and you're all struggling, it's hard for me, mm-hmm. right? So even though I know I'm helping. So I created this master class because what happened was I created the webinar to bring people to the course. And people love the webinar so much. And the webinar just basically slapped together. And uh, But I really love the structure of the webinar. And so what I did was I said, okay, well, why don't I just take a week and make that webinar into a masterclass? Now we're four months later, you know, I'm taking that, you know, (laughs) it didn't take a week. And I just, yeah, it just, cause I'm a a little bit of a perfectionist when it comes to that sort of stuff. So I filmed the rough version of it yesterday and sent it out to four of the people that were actually in that class Mm. and said, what do you think of this? Because it repeats itself. And, And people will say that about the book. It's like the book repeats itself. It's like, yeah. And do you know why the book repeats itself? is because your conscious mind gets it. It understands it right away. But it's your unconscious mm-hmm. mind that holds all the programming. Mm-hmm. So if I don't change your unconscious mind, the book, you know, you'll learn something. And we all read self-help books. It's like, that made sense. And then we never use them, right? So it's a matter of, so the, the, the master class is like four hours. So at the end of the four hours, it's, it's just an experience. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of repetition. I go back to the same points, the alarm anxiety cycle. I go back to that like 10 times. Just so that you really understand it. So when you finish that masterclass and you feel anxious, it's like it will completely change your perception of what you're going through and what you can do about it at that point. From an unconscious level, from the from the level that it's created at, right? So that's what I want to change. I want to basically, you know, I could teach you what you need to know in half an hour. Like basically, if I had to tell you how to heal your anxiety, it's basically feel it in your body and don't add thoughts to it. See ya. Thanks. That's the end of the that's the end it's of the, that the podcast. Simple. You know, forty five seconds later, that's it. But it takes it's hard to do that because as a child, you got some benefit out of worrying. So we learn whatever workforce as children, we keep doing, even if it's harmful. Addiction, same thing. Whatever we, whatever we learn, we keep doing. Whatever eases that pain, we keep doing. So if I'm going to tell you to stop worrying and you wor- use worrying to ease the pain, 
it's going to be hard. So I have to get into that unconscious mind and start showing you the reason why you have to do it this way and escape the bigger picture as opposed to being constantly just trying to chase your tail and fix your thoughts. So for our listeners, how would they be able to sign up for your masterclass? Yeah, it'll be on, it'll be on Instagram. Um, yeah, there's a few little hints on there now and I'm going to sell it for like like $147. Awesome. Like it's not going to be like a $2,000 program or any of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. I want as many mm-hmm. people as possible to take this, you know, four hours and just devote four hours to it. Take a Sunday or whatever you're going to do. And it will change your attitude towards your anxiety. Mm-hmm. I absolutely guarantee it. It will. It. It, it can't not, you know, mm-hmm. if you do. And there's a few exercises in it, but it's basically just, I slowly kind of almost in a Socratic way, like almost like asking you questions. It's like, okay, where is this? What do you do with this? How does this happen? And then I, I share some of my own, you know, healing and some of the personal stories of my patients, you know, where they found their alarm and how to deal with it and that kind of stuff. And after that, it's just all practice, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's just really practice. But that said, you know, if you have real severe alarm, if you have real severe trauma, you know, you need someone to help you. You can't just do this on your own. This will help for sure. And mm-hmm. often it's maybe a good stage. And the book is actually a very good first opening, even though it can be very triggering and tell people to take it slowly. But it's just like, it's the first, and people say that all the time, it's the first time someone has explained to it in a way that actually feels right mm-hmm. to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would echo that completely. 100%. So one last question, because I know sure. we want to respect your time. Uh, who would you like to have a life conversation with? Who would I like to have a life conversation with? <laughs> wow. Um, Leonardo da Vinci, probably. Ooh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Say yeah. more about that. Well, just because he had so he, he had this real artistic and scientific part of him, right? And I, I can't not compare myself to Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci by any means at all. But it's just like like... People that have like a really strong artistic focus and a really strong intellectual focus, mm. like I really, I really like joining with those people mm. yes. because they make, they, they do the crossover. They make me think of, of things that are intellectual in an artistic way and things that are, that are artistic in a more intellectual way, which is kind of like why I like using my neuroscience brain mm-hmm. to explain what's happening. Mm-hmm. Because I think people really like to know that they're not freaks, yes. you know, like there's an Absolutely. actual, there's actually neurological pathways from the amygdala through the hippocampus, superior temple gyrus, you know, insula, all that kind of stuff that actually make this thing that we call anxiety. So they don't feel it's a ethereal thing in their head, like they're broken. And it's like, no, your nervous system is actually acting exactly the way it's supposed to mm-hmm. based on your experience. Yeah. You know? Well, I think for most people when you're really struggling with anxiety it one of the hallmarks of it is you feel very much alone you feel very much isolated and to really hear and understand that there's a a physiologic reason that it's happening and b that you're not alone that there's a story after story of people that you can relate to just is that first step in drawing you out of the cycle yeah Mm -hmm. and there is a sense of withdrawal too when you when you go into survival physiology there is a sense that i don't want to connect i don't want to attach Mm -hmm. to love because maybe love wasn't safe Mm -hmm. so it, it becomes this very insular in your head kind of you know, program that just keeps repeating and it just keeps going over and over and over again. And I think that's one of the worst parts of anxiety and the reason why people think it's a life sentence is because that's all they've known and that's all they think they'll ever know. Well, I would absolutely recommend 
all of you get on Instagram right now and start following Dr. Russ because he provides so much valuable content online. It's incredible. Um, All of the knowledge and wisdom that you share and um, really empower people with is fantastic. So thank you You so much for spending this time with us. Thank you for the work you're doing in the world. And, And if you have not purchased anxiety rx yet get on it get on it or the master class or, or the both. master class or both yeah. <laughs> it will change your life it will thank you for joining us today and we will see you next week